Hey, good morning, everyone. Just great being here with you. Uh, if you have your Bible, will you please open it to Matthew chapter 20? Here we're talking about a parable of Jesus um, that he delivers to the disciples about the kingdom of God. Um, the context here is important because last week we went through Matthew chapter 19, and we're continuing to go through this series in Matthew uh, into the fall. And in the passage in, in chapter 19, uh, Jesus dialogues with a rich young ruler, and of course he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But in the end, he's asking, what must I do to earn eternal life? And then Jesus tells him, hey, obey the Old Testament ethic on, and, uh, and be perfect at it. He basically said, um, yeah, I'm great. I do all those things. And then he said, great, then go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then he walks away kind of uh, in shame with his head hung low, so to speak. You can read that into the text um, because he had great wealth. Now, the disciples see this interaction happening, and of course, they ask the question, whoa, if that guy with that prestige and that uh, level of property and power, but also kind of moral achievement, if he doesn't make it into the kingdom, then what good does that make for us? And so Peter asks the question in chapter 19, uh, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And so um, they're also kind of like noticing like, we didn't have as much as that guy, but we did the right thing too. We walked away from everything to follow you, Jesus. And so he describes for them a quick answer. And then he says, uh, but some of the first will be last and the last will be first. And then he goes on in chapter 20 to tell this parable and then concludes the parable with the first will be last and the last will be first. So we're meant to read this obviously as one unit, as Jesus describes like any parable what is the kingdom of God like? What is his reign and his rule and a relationship with him going to be like? What's God like? How does this story, uh, as we reflect on the parable, reflect on who we are? And then church, as we read this together this morning, how does this reflect on who we are as a church family? Like, what does it say about God? What's it say about me? What's it say about us as a church? Parables are meant to conceal truth, they're also meant to reveal truth. They're meant to conceal truth kind of in the story so that you only get to the nugget of truth. You only get to the real core reality of the parable if you really seek God for the answer. You have to be paying attention to the characters and to the storyline and the conflict and the resolution to really seek out the truth. You have to really want it. You have to be almost kind of on the edge of your seat going, okay, God, tell me about who you are to really get the truth out of the parable. Parables conceal the truth. They also reveal a greater truth than if Jesus would have just turned it into a modern bullet point principle and said, this is what God is like, now believe it. The stories color in the lines more than just a principle. And so parables uh, tell us some greater truth than what we could learn from a principle. And so today we're going to dig into this passage, walk through the context. I'll make three quick points from it. And, uh, and my prayer is that God really touches our heart, moves our heart, motivates our heart this morning. In verse 1, we see that uh, Jesus starts his parable like many of them. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who represents God in the story. He went out in the early morning to hire workers for the vineyard about 6 a.m. because the normal workday in the ancient world was sun up to sundown, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And so he goes out at 6 a.m. Uh, to hire workers for his vineyard. The time in the year where a vineyard owner would most likely Higher extra workers would be during harvest time. This is an important season because if you harvest too early or you harvest too late or you mistreat the process of harvest, um, then you lose a lot of money that you've invested into your crop. And so this is a time when the landowners are out looking for 
uh, key workers, important workers. And then, of course, he goes out to, to look for what is essentially day laborers to accomplish that task. In verse 1, we see that. In verse 2, we see that he agrees with the workers to pay them a denarius for the day. And he sends them out then into the vineyard. A denarius was a very fair day's wage for a worker. Now, these day laborers would have been kind of the lowest of the low. They would have been people who had something wrong with them, some, some mistreatment from the larger group of people, from society systemically, or they might have had individual decisions that contributed to them being marginalized in a way that uh, they're day laborers and can't hold down a job. Um, the the socio-cultural kind of assumptions of the day is that day laborers are, are in a place where they're desperate and they're trying to just earn enough money to put food on the table for that day. In verse 3, we see that uh, now the story kind of starts to take shape. He goes out at 9 in the morning and he sees people doing nothing and he hires them. In verse 4, uh, he agrees not to pay them a denarius because they're so desperate. He just says to them, I'll pay you whatever is right. And so the story is start to, starts to take shape because now the vineyard owner is leaving it vague about what he's going to pay these people. But I'm sure because he left it vague and because these people are in a desperate place, they would be working during the day doing the math on, okay, so you got hired at 6 a.m. and he said, you're going to make a denarius, so I'll make a little bit less, but I might, I might be able to buy this much food for the day. And that makes sense for the people who are hired at 9 and at noon and at 5 p.m. He leaves it vague in the story about what he's going to pay these different people until, of course, the suspense builds towards the end. In uh, verse 4, he says, I'll pay you whatever is right, whatever's just. So they went in verse 5. In verse 6, um, it says that uh, about 5 in the afternoon, then he hires those people. Of course, he asks them the question, uh, what have you been standing here all day doing nothing? And in verse 7, it says that no one hires us. Now, of course, there are probably some cultural assumptions of the day or even assumptions that we bring to the table. What's wrong with these people that they haven't been hired yet until 5 p.m. on a workday? Is it because they're untrustworthy? Is there some personal decision? Or is there some sort of like systemic problem that people would just kind of overlook them, that they're overlooked and marginalized? And those assumptions would be carried by the original hearers of the parable as well. What's wrong with these people? But the assumption in hearing the parable is that there is something wrong with these people, either on the assumptions placed on them by the culture or a racism or classism, or they might have been a certain age. They might have been older than the other people that were working that day. They might have had a physical ailment that made them not as, um, as um, hireable in, for a workday. And then uh, he says, go on into the vineyard. So the 5 p.m. workers go, and they're working for an hour when the end of the day comes. In verse 8, evening came, the landowner calls the foreman, and he says, call the workers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired going on to the first. And so there's a line getting ready for their paycheck, so to speak. And the people who are at the front of the line are the 5 p.m. workers. And they get a denarius. And so if that's the case, you might uh, assume, and it's stated in the passage, that the people who worked all day are really kind of like licking their chops, going like, wow, if they're making one denarius. And I know he said I was going to get a denarius, but what would that mean if I worked 12 times more than a person who just made one denarius? This must be a very faithful, a very generous landowner. That's the tension building in the story. And we'll get more to what they said there in a minute. In verse 13, um, he answered one of them. He says, um, the landowner says, um, am I not being unfair to you, friend? 
didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to pay the one who was hired last the same as you. And verse 15, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or have or are you envious because I'm generous? Pay attention to the word generous. A synonym for that would be good. Are you angry because I'm good? In verse 16, now the, the Jesus reiterates the statement that he repeated from chapter 19 when he originally was talking to the disciples. So the last will be first and the first will be last. What is Jesus getting at? What does this mean about us? What does this mean about God? What does this mean about us, Ambassador Church? We're going to see three things in the passage, and I'll move through them very quickly. One, we see the kind of people that God hires, the kind of people God calls and brings into his kingdom. Secondly, we'll see the result of works. Uh, In verses 11 and 12, the result of the work of the person who showed up to work at 6 a.m., the hired first man. And then thirdly, we'll see God's unfair grace. Have you ever seen someone succeed in a way that you were wanting to succeed or to have something that you didn't have? And did you ever grumble at God that he's unfair? Have you ever had a time in your life where you thought, God, what are you up to that the people that I know that seem to be unfair, unjust, cheating at work, um, you know, uh, people who aren't as godly, they have maybe better kids or their kids succeed in a particular way or they seem to have a better relationship with their spouse, so they succeed at work, they have more comfort, they have a nicer house. Uh, I think all of us are plagued with those questions. God, are you even fair? What is your fairness like? What is your justice like when it's totally possible in this life to see people succeed around us? And the nation of Israel had that problem. And then now certainly we see this issue play out with the parable. So we see something about God's heart for the poor. The owner calls them, calls them to work for him. So we see something about how God works and the people who get to participate in God's kingdom. He goes to the day laborer site, to the marketplace, and then he elects these people. He calls out these people. He brings them into his kingdom. And that's what we see in salvation in Christ as well, that God changes our heart. He moves in our life and he he causes us to repent and to have salvation in him. Like that work of salvation and God's love for you is a work that is completely of Jesus and by his grace comes into our lives. And so it's good news in this parable that God has a heart for sinners, for people who are far from God, who people, for people who have not strung together good days, good years, good actions. It's almost like if you were in middle school and you saw that, um, you know, like when you picked sports in middle school, it was always the same totally mean, unjust circumstance where uh, the captains of the team stand over here and there's a big, long line of students. And then you go, okay, first round draft picks. I want you, I want you, I want you, all the captains pick. And then inevitably, the last four people who have been left to just fend for themselves on this last round of sports picks are always like so demoralized. It's such a sad scene. I actually remember when I was in middle school, a a particular day where we were playing softball and uh, I had this kind of like stroke of genius. I don't know if it was mercy or just kind of like a desire to win, but uh, I was, I was a captain of four teams and we were playing softball and uh, they picked all in the first round of picks, you know, they line up all the students and they picked Uh, You know, three of the biggest guys who could probably swing as hard as they could. But I knew because I was friends with this girl, Julie, uh, that uh, she played softball for her team. And I knew that none of the guys in our school knew how to pitch underhand fast. And so uh, all the other guys' teams...
teams were like filled up with all the guys and then they picked all the girls and then they picked like the scrawny people and then those that's the normal way you pick teams my first round draft pick was julie and uh, i remember people snickering at me and thinking oh okay that was funny maybe that was a joke or a slant because julie was a, a little overweight she was kind of bookish she was kind of quiet um, but i knew I knew that Julie was on a competitive softball team and that we were about to dominate because Julie was a good pitcher. So we get through the, the, the actual tournament of softball games and we never lost. No one got a hit off of Julie. She stepped out to the mound. She'd warm her shoulder up and then from the first pitch you'd see that she really knew how to whip it. You know, she'd really get the ball behind her and then go behind and then just go nuts with it. And uh, we never lost because I picked Julie first. Well, um, God has a heart for Julie's. A heart for the overlooked, a heart for the people who typically just don't get picked first. And if we don't understand that, we have a problem in our life. And that's where we get to the second point here, which is the result of works. Verse 11 says that um, when they received their pay, they began to grumble against the landowner. And look in verse 12, the attitude of the 6 a.m. worker who worked all day and felt like he deserved more. He says um, when they got equal pay with the 5 p.m. worker, he doesn't just say, hey, don't you think I should get more? He says in verse 12, you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. See, the problem with the attitude of the early morning worker is not just that he's upset he could have gotten more. Though he agreed on a denarius, worked all day and got a denarius, the issue is that he's upset because he sees himself as better than the 5 p.m. worker. He knows that any kind of person who waited that long to get picked was probably somebody who wasn't worth as much as him. And so he's saying, I see the value in myself. And don't you see how I proved it through my self-justifying work? Now I'm upset at that person because I see them as better than me. And how dare, how dare you create equality between that person and myself? See, this is the problem with works righteousness. This is the problem with us going to God and saying, God, I'm going to do good. I'm gonna, maybe some of this, this is your story, where you had a, a sinful life and then you decide to kind of turn your life around and then you, you decided to get religious and to be good. And, and uh, when we want to uh, uh, create our own righteousness, we want to save ourselves, now that works righteousness just becomes a God. It's just us trying to bend God's arm. It's just us putting ourselves in the place of God. Now, not by living a sinful life, but by living a good life and demanding that God pay us more. I mean, don't you see that in yourself? In the times where we look at other people and we say, I act better than them. Why doesn't God give me what I think I deserve? After all, I'm so much better or I try so much harder or I'm so much more open-minded and authentic to them or I'm so much more rigorous and I'm, I'm more rigid and I'm, I'm more, I live my life by the Bible, by the letter of the law. And, and we see a sin here that's common to all of our lives to the extent that we deny the depth of our sin but instead emphasize how hard we've worked and how much we've succeeded in following God, now it causes a problem. It causes a problem with viewing other people as less than ourselves. That's self-righteousness. That's works righteousness. Now, equality is a big buzzword in our culture today, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because I think it's kind of like a, it might take a little more time to nuance this, but you have to understand justice or a term that we've kind of created to wrap our heads around this in the world today. Social justice, racial reconciliation, and equality. These are all things that are big, hot topics. And I know that um, it is the perception of a lot of people that the church is kind of lagging behind on the discussion. I know it's the assumption of a lot of people that the non-believing world is really fighting the good fight for racial equality and social justice, and that the church is kind of like the conservative group that's not fighting that fight. Uh, first of all, I would say 
to some extent you're right, to some extent you're wrong. To some extent, because the church is diverse, it has diversity of opinion, it has a diversity of, of the kind of people, uh, of generations that are saved in Jesus and, and love God. Yeah, there's going to be a group of people who kind of mess up this issue. And I mourn that, I think, with a lot of other Christians as well, that we're slow to the game on recognizing racism or we're slow to the game in doing something about social injustice. Um, that to some extent, that is true. And I think there is a dialogue amongst Christians, of course, about that. And then, of course, part of that narrative that non-Christians are fighting the good fight and that uh, Christians are lagging behind on it is actually kind of just a created narrative. It's almost like every time a pastor, from my own experience, watches the way the dominant kind of secular news treats religion, it's always like a facepalm moment because you always go, they never get it right. They never talk about the Bible right. They never talk about pastors right. They never give it a fair shake. And that's just normal. That's the result of what our, our world is like these days with its diversity and kind of polarized society. All that to say, to some extent, it's true that Christians need to kind of like grow in this area. We need to get more biblical. We need to get more uh, dialogue going about racial issues and, and cultural social issues for certain. At the same time, there are great Christian people who are fighting for these particular causes that uh, have been doing it for years. And of course, that's the case. You can pick up a million books from a Christian perspective on social justice that are actually really great. In the end, this parable shows us that God has this unique heart for equality, inclusion, and justice that is different than our own. And the 6 a.m. worker, the people who worked all day, they have a point. Why can't I get paid more when I worked more? And yet God's salvation and, and his heart for those who are marginalized, his heart for the latecomers, his heart for people who have messed up a lot of their life, but then come to Jesus and want salvation in Jesus and then are accepted completely in him. That kind of equality inclusion is the solution to the problem in the world. It's the, it's the, the, the kind of inclusion, the kind of love and equality that causes us to give our money away to those in need, to see uh, genders as equal and to promote flourishing between men in women and women, to promote flourishing between different cultures and different ethnic groups. And so the cool thing about this passage is that we see like we don't get what we deserve and that's good news. Because if we got what we deserve, we would see ourselves as day laborers who don't have a lot of wealth. Um, and, and this is an illustration of our sin. We'd see ourselves as a bunch of 5 p.m. workers who have been largely uh, rejected by the world, or that at least in our sin, deserve just kind of being left alone. That's part of the depth of our sin. That's what we deserve. The, the story illustrates that reality. And so the good news of the gospel is that we're accepted, we're brought in, and we're hired, and we're paid a salvation that is so much greater than we deserve, that the only word, or one of the few words that you can use to describe it is just grace. It's like love and grace that's been lavished on us when we don't deserve it. And that's the thing that makes grace so powerful, forgiveness so powerful, mercy from God so powerful. It's when we realize that we don't deserve it, that it's powerful that we receive it. C.S. Lewis um, describes in his book, The Great Divorce, two former workmates, acquaintances that meet together in the afterlife. And the book is a, the book is a parable about uh, two ghosts in this instance, one of them who resides in hell and the other uh, in heaven, a murderer who is now a solid person who lives in heaven. He's a complete whole person. And, uh, and now we can listen in this quote to the ghost who cries foul about the fact that the murderer who repented and is now in heaven is a whole person and the person who's in hell and is a ghost. He says, what I'd like to understand, said the ghost, the person who is in hell, is why is what you're here for. 
as pleased as punch you a bloody murder while I've been walking the streets down there living in a place like a pigsty all these years. Personally, I'd have thought you... Um, I'd have thought you and I ought to be the other way around. That's my personal opinion. Look at me now, said the ghost, slapping his chest, but the slap made no noise. I got straight, I gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults, far from it. But I done my best all my life, see. I done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't my, by my rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. And if I took my wages, I'd done my job. See, that's the sort I was, and I don't care who knows it. You may think that you can put me down because you're dressed up like that, which you weren't when you worked under me. Oh, no, it's not so bad as that, the man says. I haven't got my rights, or uh, nor should I, to be here. You will not get yours either. You'll be something far better Never fear. And then he's interrupted by his workmate. Uh, what do you keep arguing for? I only want my rights. I'm only asking for anybody's... I, I'm not asking for anyone's bleeding charity. And then the co-worker answers, Then do at once. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking, but nothing can be bought. He answers, I don't want charity. I'm a decent man. If I had my rights, I'd be here long ago. And you can tell them I said so. The other shook his head. You can never do it like that, he said, and it isn't exactly true, you know. The co-worker goes on to describe to his former boss that in his life, he wasn't as good as he describes. So the ghost is in hell, and he's, he's saying, all I want is my rights. And his co-worker, a murderer and a poor man in his life who worked under the man, he's saying, that's not how it works. And if you're so prideful that you won't ask for bleeding charity, then you won't get it. You can't earn it. And in the same way that this ghost is grumbling and slapping his chest, though it makes no noise, in his kind of ghost state, we make the same point. You know, Jesus earlier in the book of Matthew says that blessed are those who are poor in spirit. He's saying, in a sense, blessed are those who see themselves as in need of God's riches. Now, some of us, we're not poor in spirit. We're like this ghost. We're middle class in spirit. All I want is what I earned. All I want is justice. I'm better than the next guy. I'm not that bad. And how dare God call me a sinner? Or there is, a, or you might even think, how dare anyone call me a sinner? Because isn't the definition of sin or what I ought to be like kind of up to my own decision making? And so it can be kind of offense when the Bible says, you're a deeply flawed sinner in need of God's grace. And yet, don't you see that it's that kind of attitude that says, I'm not that bad. I'm better than most. That causes all kinds of injustice all kinds of tribalism, all kinds of utilitarian beliefs that say, um, we're going to make this world equal, and if I have to mistreat you, and if I have to fight against your tribe to do it, then so be it. It's the belief that I'm not that sinful that causes all kinds of evil in our own lives and in the world. That's the disruptive, offensive truth of this parable. And it, if you have to take a second and kind of say, okay, God, Show me my, like, sin beneath my sin. Show me the sin that's, like, really plaguing my life. Then do that. Take some time to reflect. God, disrupt my self-justifying uh, mindset with the reality of who I am. So that you don't just see yourself as savvy with your money. You might see some greed underneath it. 
You, you don't just see yourself as normal uh, in, in North Orange County living your life, but you might see that the priorities you've had in your life really do focus on your security, your comfort. You might, not, uh, you might uh, see the way that you treat people at work not just as the normal corporate environment or sales is sales and that's just the way things work, but you might see that behind some of that is the tendency to mistreat people, to position yourself over other people, to shade the truth, to succeed in work. It's not an awful thing if you're in a place to repent and turn to Jesus, to say, okay, God, like I'm here, show me how I'm flawed, show me how I'm sinful, show me where I need to grow. And just know that like, Whatever you come up with in your first times of prayer, it might be the root sin of all of that, or it might just be some surface level sins. And as God deals with those surface level sins, he's going to move you on to those heart sins when you can handle them. Because oftentimes the depth of our sin is something that we have to kind of even work into understanding as we mature in our faith.